Hey everyone, we have a really special episode this week as we interview Marky Mutchler about Limpkins. Marky is a PhD student at the University of Chicago and is studying Limpkins. If you're not familiar, Limpkins are a bird that is native to South America and their range covers Florida as well. They've been expanding northwards lately, and there are many sightings in Illinois this summer. Marky tells us about them being spotted as far north as Nova Scotia as well. There's still a lot to learn. Like, will they be able to survive winters? How are they finding food in these new locations? And what is driving this expansion? Marky talks us through many of the theories and evidence as well. One of the Lipkins was found dead in Illinois recently, and that dead bird was brought to the Field Museum for research. So we talked to Marky, John, and Shannon to see what they've learned. Okay, let's go get our binoculars and get into it. All right, well, welcome back, everyone, to Birds of a Feather Talk Together. It's RJ, Amanda, Shannon, and John, and we have a special guest with us, Marky, who's joining us to talk about the Limpkin this week. Um, so I wanted to introduce everyone to Marky. Um, so Marky, if you just kind of want to say hi and give us a little bit of a background and tell us about yourself. Yeah, hi there. Um, I guess a background on me is that I've had an interest in birds since as far back as I can remember, which thanks to pretty okay memory is about age three or four. Um, I grew up in the Midwest. Uh, due to growing up in the Midwest, I was able to witness some pretty amazing bird-related spectacles growing up, uh, especially during migration. So things like gatherings of over one million snow geese in late winter to hundreds of thousands of Franklin skulls every October. And of course, classic migration, um, seeing a bunch of flashy warblers and buntings and grosbeaks in the spring. This allowed me to sort of, uh, made it pretty easy to direct my love of birds, this interest into something that is quite active. Uh, I would also say that pretty early on, um, I knew that I wanted to study birds and I really loved watching and observing birds, uh, trying to conduct sort of these observational studies as a kid, as I might've called them, uh, where I'd mostly spend a lot of time outside taking notes on things. One thing that always comes to mind when I think back on this period of my life is that I was really invested in our house wren family, um, or rather pair. And I would always know when the house wren male found a mate or they decided on a nest based on the change of their song type. I would also take notes on things like the Mississippi kites when they eventually arrived. Um, that was a little bit later. And they would do things such as have these really unique foraging patterns in the neighborhood. It was almost clock-like. It was pretty. But anyways, all of these interests and sort of observational things that I did as a kid um, has sort of led to where I am now um, as a first-year PhD student at the University of Chicago. All these passions and interests that have been strengthened and refined um, have brought me to the place I am today. Marky did sweet things with birds as a kid. She didn't take their bodies apart like I did. Oh, well, I left that out. <laughs> I There's definitely the little, like, backstory of how I got into museums and, like, yeah. <laughs> I was like, oh, I Tell love us. handling birds. Yeah. Oh, yeah. What's that? Um. Oh, gosh. So I was really interested in, like, getting to know birds in a more, like, close and physical way. I was really into, like, wanting to get into bird banding. Uh, but there weren't any banding stations nearby, and then I quickly realized that uh, growing up in the Midwest, my dad was into hunting, and I was super into that because it was a way to get closer to the birds. 
And so I would spend hours on our basement. We had like this little box TV and I was able to connect to like YouTube through it, um, which was awesome. And I would just sit there for hours watching YouTube videos on how to like taxidermy a pheasant, how to taxidermy such and such, because I wanted to learn how to actually do this for museum specimens. Um, and there were no videos on how to prepare a museum specimen. So the closest thing I had was taxidermy. Um, and so I, I definitely spent probably a disturbing amount of time in that basement, <laughs> like writing and drawing things of like how to, to like taxidermy a bird. Um, and at one point I did find a video that was like uploaded, um, by a museum on how to taxidermy, not taxidermy, how to make a museum specimen of, I believe it was a quail at the time. And that actually came from, uh, I believe it was Mark Robbins at KU who at Kansas university is only a couple hours away. So I was super stoked. I was like, oh my God, there's a museum close by and this guy preps these birds and there's a video online. Um, so definitely there were moments, my, my parents were pretty aware of Migratory Bird Treaty Act at this point. So they were like very, they were very observant of if I would bring anything that was not a house sparrow or a starling. They were like, nope, you can't have that. Um, so no, I definitely had times where finding um, dead birds and things like that, I'd bring them over to, to look at their feathers and things like that. And um, I never got quite far enough to doing anything that the taxidermy videos had just because my parents were pretty strict about that I definitely had that that interest in uh the weird museum things as a kid that to people without context might have been a bit disturbing <laughs> yeah last summer when we were in the jersey shore we john and i watched uh an episode of i can't remember what channel it was on tlc uh, TLC or something like that about obsessions and trying to cure people of their obsessions. And one of the women was a tax taxidermist. She loved preparing birds. And and we're like, why is she on this show? There's nothing wrong with her. She doesn't need to be fixed. But she freaked out everybody in her life. So Marky, so you're kind of an expert on limpkins is why we wanted to talk as well or studying limpkins so i kind of was curious like what was it about limpkins that you know out of all the birds that you were kind of wanting to learn more about them and study them um if you could tell us a little bit about that yeah i would say broadly a lot of the science that i have been a part of in the past and that i currently am a part of has really revolved around sort of those broad questions even going back to when i talked about studying the house runs of the mississippi kites um, and it's, it's always kind of based around like why birds are the way they are um, and why they do the things that they do. And so Limpkin has been a unique case in the fact that there's this sudden incursion or this sudden explosion, I guess, of all these Limpkins that um, are across the eastern U.S. Uh, this bird is a, a highly, often regarded as a highly specialized species that within the United States has historically really only been in the Southeast and almost entirely restricted to Florida. Um, and so in the last decade or so, there's been kind of some slow pulses here and there. And then in like 2017, 2018, there were some pretty notable movements of them. And so these sort of notable movements um, and the start of it got caught my interest at least, but I didn't start really 
seeing why they were doing or trying to find figure out why the Limkins were moving uh, until a friend came to me who is a close friend that I spent a lot of time with. She sort of helped me get into the birding community in Missouri when I was growing up. And she was like, what, what are these Limkins doing? Why are they here? Uh, what's going on? And so that's kind of what started this, this work towards trying to figure out, like I said, why are these Limkins here? What's causing them to do this? And it, it, I think it's just that natural interest of, like I said, why birds the way they are. And one thing I think is fascinating about the fact that Marky was doing this is she started the year, several working on data from several years before this past year, when things absolutely exploded across Eastern North America. Yeah, I mean, oh. I I think uh, a lot of a lot of people have their attention now on Lumpkin due to the last year or two, um, but there have been other smaller, much smaller, of course, notable movements of Lumpkin. Um, several years ago, uh, and there are historical records from the 1800s of these limpkins in other Gulf states. Uh, so it's, I would say that it's absolutely a unique movement that's happening right now. Um, but they have they have done some smaller um, sort of movements into these other uh, states of similar habitat to Florida. What's the furthest north? Uh, record in over the last few years oh the last couple years i would say that probably i think there might be one that was up in uh, ontario that's pretty notable but i know that also for example nova scotia i think had had a record in in 2023 that might be the furthest north that we've seen that's a long ways from florida yes it is and um, interesting, I believe it's also Nova Scotia that has a historic record as well. So, um, yeah, I'm pretty sure it was Nova Scotia. Yeah, it was, I think, in the 60s, Nova Scotia had a record of Lincoln as well. And what are some of the theories as to why they're on the move or why they're traveling up north? Yeah, so initially when we were seeing movements, some people thought that it was weather related and tied to storms. I mean, we get a lot of um, birds with similar distributions or maybe wider distributions across the Gulf, but are overly like over overall a southerly distributed sort of wetland species, or maybe tied to the Gulf of Mexico in general, um, that when a hurricane comes through, often you'll have displacement of these birds. And so you'll have things like frigate birds, um, being blown all the way up into the center of the U.S., where hundreds and hundreds of miles from where they should be. Um, and so people were kind of like, oh, maybe Limkin, it's just something different, where maybe a couple pretty serious hurricanes um, that have impacted the Gulf Coast have moved some of these populations. But it became pretty quickly apparent that this pattern of these Limkins being um, across much of the eastern U.S., very far from Florida and the Gulf Coast, is an ongoing situation and a lot more structured than just a single or a couple events of these birds popping up north due to a storm and then finding their way back. Um, kind of like how the, the flamingos um, happened, where they, theirs was more tied to, to storms, Yucatan. I guess in terms of theory, other theories that have come up, there's not been too much discussion going on in terms of what's happening because a lot of that has been tied to 
the sort of original assumption of storms. But there's uh, some thoughts kind of similar to how the snowy owl invasion sort of works. So if you have a boom in population, then all these birds move. And there may be a situation where we're just having a boom in population of limpkins and they're moving into other habitats and maybe leapfrogging to different wetlands and simply just taking advantage of habitat as numbers increase. And Marky, what are they, what did they attribute the boom in population to? For the snowy owls or for limpkin? For limpkins. For limpkin, um, I would say that there is no conclusive evidence that there has been a boom in population. That's just one of the theories. Um, so I'm not exactly sure if I, I, I think the, the first thing that people would say would be food source. Um, so, for example, with the snowy owls, uh, increase in food source leads to increase in um, offspring, and that's what causes these large uh, movements. And limpkin, you could say similarly, um, I believe this has been suggested, is uh, these limpkin feed on apple snails. And there's a lot of different species of apple snails, some which are native, some which are invasive and non-native. And some of these apple snails that are invasive and non-native have spread pretty quickly across the Gulf Coast. And with that, some limpkins seem to have followed. It seems like at least novel breeding populations that are happening along the Gulf Coast. Uh, those novel limpkin breeding populations are strongly tied to apple snails. Now, in terms of that causing a population increase, I don't think that has been published on yet, but I know that there are surveys that are ongoing. Um, and additionally, sort of an interesting case on that is that a lot of the limpkins, most of the limpkins that we see that are outside of these Gulf Coast states and further north are not eating apple snails because there aren't apple snails available. Um, so potential new breeding populations that are not tied to apple snails would be, uh, interesting to look at. Yeah, one, one thing that's curious about limpkin, because they're not particularly small birds, um, they're actually not very well censused. So nobody has a good idea, for instance, in the breeding season, how many limpkin nests there are in any parts of the range, really, which is which is kind of surprising for a bird that size that's going to build a stick nest. And it, 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 they're just really dispersed and, and not easy to find. Do they nest in trees or... Where, where do they nest? Yeah, so um, they do nest in a more dispersed, dispersed manner, and they often will nest right at the waterline, which is actually an issue because a lot of their nests are lost due to flooding or predation, such as like raccoons can reach their nest pretty quickly. But it, it's definitely harder. I would say a lot of wetland species that we have a, a good census or a decent census on often nest in things like rookeries, uh, where they often have visual nests that are high up in trees. They're all together, so you can see colonies pretty quickly. Whereas limpkins are, are more spread out and have these individual territories, like John mentioned. Um, and being in wetland, it's pretty hard to access a lot of those bayous and swamps where these birds are nesting in more hidden nest structure or even just group structure. We should take a step back and tell people what limpkins are. Are <laughs> good idea, definitely. <laughs> because they're not small, so that's the one thing to know. So they're not poorly known because they're tiny. They're 
you know, somewhere small heron-sized birds. They look kind of like a cross between a heron and a rail, I suppose. Uh, but they're really interesting taxonomically. They're found in their own family, and they're part of the tree of life for birds that contains rails, but they're not. So it's what's called a monotypic family. So there's only one species in the family, depending on what you call a species. And uh, so they obviously are just really unique and they don't really look like anything else that's obvious position that you might place have placed them in historically. And now we know for sure from DNA analyses that that's the case. They are not closely related to anything, but they're in that part of the um, of the tree of life for birds. And if you look at them, they get, I didn't realize this until today, that they get their name because the first settlers thought they limped. And so, and if you look at videos, there are some pretty neat videos of them online. You can like really see that hesitating, limpy kind of way that they walk. Um, so that made me laugh. And the other thing that's really ama amazing about them, they're kind of boring from a color perspective. No offense, limpkins, but you are. Uh, but they make mechanical sounds with their wings. So if you look, um, we'll see if we can take a picture of their wings. Uh, and you can see that they, their outermost primary is weirdly shaped. And it makes these vibrating, buzzy kind of sounds as part of their displays. Um, and they're also called crying birds, which if you, when you go back and listen to vocalizations, they would make, if, if you live near them, I think they could make you crazy because mm. the males will sing all night, apparently during the breeding season. So it's like a relentless whining, crying um, sound. And it's loud. It's super loud. It's almost like somebody's screaming. It, it does. And, and, and for a bird that's pretty inconspicuous and doesn't look like it necessarily would get around that much. And, and certainly you don't, you don't see limpkins flying around in a lot of situations. They have a distribution that's amazing. I mean, they go all the way from Northern Argentina, through the Amazon basin, through the West Indies, through Central America, um, before they stop and, and before they started expanding into Eastern North America, if that's what they're doing. So when they're coming up North, are they finding food sources that are reliable yet? Yeah, uh, a lot of the birds that are found by birders usually kind of station themselves in one area and just stay there until the bird disappears, maybe it passes away. But a lot of them are eating native mussel species. I know, for example, in like Kansas and Iowa, a lot of these limpkins are eating things called giant floaters and paper pond shell, um, which again are, are native mussel species because there aren't um, these non-native apple snails this far north for them to eat. So they are definitely taking advantage of the native mussels. There are also other non-native uh, mussel species that they're eating as well, but not apple snails. And it seems like a lot of these birds have been doing it, have been eating these species without much issue. I know that Olympians have these very specialized bills, uh, especially towards the tip of their bill, there's sort of a gap between the upper and lower parts of the bill that allow them to potentially hold shelled 
uh, prey easier, and then they also have a specific bend in their build that allows them to eat sort of these twisted snail-shaped um, organisms. And so I, I know personally from seeing these Libkins out of range, they uh, make quick work of our native mussel species, grabbing them, bringing them up to shore pretty quickly, and, and essentially hammering them with their bill in a very aggressive motion. There's some videos of these birds like rearing their head back and just smashing all the way to the ground really hard multiple times against these these mussels and in a couple seconds have them open and eating them. So that's interesting because it looks like on the snails they cut the they don't smash them open. They kind of cut the abductor muscle and take them out of the shell. So are they separating the shell using the same way they would with the um with uh, snails or are they just smashing them and then eating them? Yeah, I would say that uh, photos and observations of the mussel species that they're eating here have shown a lot of them split open rather than just like randomly broken into. But I certainly think that there is a different method that's being potentially employed by these birds uh, to access them. I think a lot of the apple snail usage, I think... Um, previous work that has looked specifically at how Libkins get into that is using that bent tip of their bill to sort of access the certain chambers. Whereas in these mussel species, like I said, yeah, they're hammering them. And I think that they, I'm not exactly sure if anyone's looked at specifically how they're hammering them, but I know that from looking at the shells after the Limkin has gone through them, it's often images of these sort of nicely split open. Um, so each half is, is split symmetrically. I was going to say, we saw a limpkin this summer at the Chicago Botanic Garden, and it was out in the water, and it looked like it was trying to feed, and we saw it kind of going into the water and, like, playing with something and pull it out and realized that it was going after a turtle, and it was kind of doing, like, what you were describing, where it was, like, jamming down into, and there was something by its feet, and then it would pull out this turtle and then, like, kind of dropped it, and we never saw it, like, successfully actually get it, but I think either this turtle, the turtle was stunned and it was or it had already killed it and was trying to find a way to break open the shell. Are there any, I mean, evidence of them eating turtles or anything like that? Or is that just an example of it trying to find food in a new habitat? Um, I would say that I think a lot of work has been like, oh, they eat apple snails and some other mussels. But I think that they're probably opportunistic in a variety of ways. I'm not exactly sure... If that's, I'm sure it's, it's probably been documented, but um, I think for the most part it is focused on mussels, but I'm not quite sure. Interesting. The turtle is really cool. You know what, no, what I, what I was going to say was that you know they're they're surviving outside their their native range into February, and luckily we've had a fairly mild winter with a few really bad spells that they must have been able to find enough food to, to to get through. The one interesting caveat is if you look to the future and say that suddenly this is great habitat for limpkins and they start becoming year-round residents, a lot of those freshwater mussels are actually endangered species too. Wow. wow. Yep. That's dramatic. Okay, we're going to pause here and we'll finish up the rest of the interview next week. Next week, we'll discuss the limpkin that was found dead in Illinois and what the Field Museum has learned from the bird when it was brought in. 
Thanks everyone for listening. We appreciate all of our listeners. We love you. If you have a question for us that you'd like read and answered on the podcast, send it to podcast.birdsofafeather at gmail.com. If you haven't already, please make sure to click subscribe or follow in your podcast app so you always get our newest episodes set your way. Okay, thanks everyone for listening. See you next week.